I'm amazed at the amount of conversations I've had with strangers about water. People that have watched our Kinetico commercials like to have fun with them and offer me their own water. We laugh for a little bit. And then eventually we end up talking about water and I explain what I've learned about my own water since switching to my Kinetico water treatment system. First off, I was blown away by how gross my city water has been. After changing out the filter one time, I saw just how much rust and crud built up. Trust me, it is disgusting. I used to drink that and you are too. Now my water is clean, soft and rust free. We can taste the difference, feel it in our showers, and see it in our clothes. Now you can see the difference for yourself because Aquarius Home Services and Kinetico offers a free water analysis. Get rid of that white scale buildup, orange rust stains, colors, strong odors, and funny tastes with a Kinetico water treatment system that provides the world's most efficient water softener and the best reverse osmosis system in the industry. You, too, can have worry-free drinking water today. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. Sitting across the table from me is Natalie Dillon, as always, my co-host in this outdoor world that we love so much. We are really going to leave our comfort zone today. At least it, for me, it, it would be leaving the comfort zone. But I'm fascinated by the topic that we're going to discuss today because it's on my bucket list. We're going spearfishing. And this is something that you've done, Natalie. I, I kind of want you to lead us into our guest today because you went spearfishing with this for gentleman. Sure. Uh, but what got you underwater and what was that experience like? So my vast experience with spearfishing totals to exactly two times. Okay. So we That's will we'll chat a little bit I've about that. Yes. But it, it's something I have had the privilege of having a little bit of experience with. And I'll give kind of my background so that uh, kind of to, to bring in our guests too, who I know that everybody listening, whether you're a angler, hunter, I think just human in you general. You combine both will of be, it, fishing exactly. and hunting. Yeah. yeah. So so people listening will really enjoy our guest today. But so how it really got on my radar, I'd seen, you know, videos or whatever on the internet about it and thought it was really cool. Um, but I was actually in Greece several years ago um, where my family is from. And truly the people I was with, we just bumped into a group of people that were spearfishing. We saw them on the side of the road loading up a bunch of gear into a boat to go do, do some spearfishing on the Aegean. We started talking to them. There was a definite language barrier. There wasn't sure. much uh, English spoken by them, but one thing led to another and they ended up offering my friend and I an opportunity to go out and spearfish the next day. So I had about zero training with it. Again, a language barrier, but got the opportunity to put on the wet wetsuit, hold the, uh, a spear gun and get in the water. And it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Definitely a little bit nerve wracking for sure mm -hmm. outside my comfort zone. Um, we can talk about it as we go, but I did spear or shoot. We'll ask the, our guest today, the best terminology, but I was able to get a very small fish, which I like to think is maybe more of an accomplishment. So that definitely, uh, you know, put the, the, gave me the taste for it. And then a little bit after that, um, had the opportunity to go down to Florida for a video that we were filming with a brand um, that was kind of a, an angling and spearfishing combo video. 
Um, so I was brought in as the the angler, and our guest today was brought in as the spear fisherman. The expert. And we got to do a little bit of both. So I had the opportunity to be in the water in Florida um, spearfishing with Pete, who we're about to meet, um, and Perrin, an underwater videographer. And it was one of those moments that people say, like, I couldn't believe my eyes. And that's how I felt the entire time I was in the water, being in the ocean, just surrounded by blue as far as the eye can see, it truly was this moment of like, am I really here right now? Am I really seeing what I'm seeing? So being able to watch, you know, Pete and Perrin swim down way yeah. deeper than I could disappear, go. Disappear, I hear. Disappear out of sight <laughs> and they're bobbing in the water um, and then see them come back up, you know, with fish. E even just that was cool. So well, let's, I let's have a meet lot to guest. learn. Yes, we should I bring in well. our guests. So we're joined today by Pete Coriel. Pete, he's got over a decade of experience, professional guiding, uh, avid spear fisherman. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Pete, where are you at right now? So I am currently in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, is that home? It is not, no. My home base is in a place called Montauk, New York, okay. which is a small town on the tip of Long Island, New York, the most eastern end of the island. Um, we call Montauk, sometimes you call it the bitter end. It's a, uh, it's a small, uh, drinking village with a fishing problem. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's my home base. Um, I am actually kind of basing this winter out of Charleston. Um, I'll be in and out traveling a bunch and then I'll be back up in Montauk right around the middle of May. And you've been, Natalie mentioned that you've been spearfishing now for over a decade or roughly a decade. Uh, is that your full-time job? Is that your career? Yeah. So I've actually, I've been spearfishing since I was, you know, a kid, but doing it professionally, it's actually been more than a decade. It's now been, um, I think it's been like 12 or 13 years and it is, my, my whole life revolves around it. It, it is what I do full-time professionally. Um, but as of uh, the last two years or going on two years, part of what I do is I run a, uh, a boat for, it's actually owned by a close friend of mine. Um, I'm the captain of the boat and we use the boat for spear fishing, but we also do a lot of rod and reel fishing as well. Um, and I do have an e-commerce business that sells spear fishing equipment, but my, my full-time profession, um, it's basically the only thing I've known and, and, and done, um, is spear fishing. So being, as you mentioned, a Northeast guy, definitely a, a fishy part of the world. There's a lot of fishing there, but it's not necessarily known or at least not historically for spear fishing. So I know you've been fishing your whole life, but how did you first get into spear fishing and why was it something that you decided to really, oh, I was going to say it, dive into. Dive into, look at <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, good question. Um, yeah. And, and Natalie, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, they some people call Montauk the the sport fishing capital of the world, but yeah, spear fishing up in our area um, was certainly I would call it like an underground sport up until recent. Um, it used to be not that long ago that they're really I mean on Long Island it was like a couple handfuls of people that that really like that that did it a lot that really pursued that passion um, and. You know, I was introduced um, to spearfishing when I was very young by my my dad. Um, it was uh, something that my dad had always been into. I mean, he didn't. It wasn't something that was like his like 
biggest hobby or anything like that, but it was something he did when he was young. It was something that we were as kids exposed to. And what really got me, I would say like, I guess like interested in it to where it wanted me to like pursue it to like other parts of the world and stuff like that was, was him just telling me about like, for example, I remember the first time he told me about quote unquote blue water spear fishing, which is essentially when you're out in, you know, very deep water, um, targeting pelagic fish such as big tuna or wahoo. And I remember as a kid, you know, that wasn't even in my realm of thought. And that like the idea of that seemed so unbelievable. It almost seemed like it, it was impossible. And it was that those like stories that really got made me want to, as I got older, made me want to like travel and, and to other parts of the world and, and, and pursue it in more of it, like in more extreme measures, if you will. Are, are there certain parts of the East coast that are legal or illegal to spearfishing or can you do it anywhere over there? Yeah. Uh, good question. So yeah, the laws can be complicated and it's not that there's any place where you, you cannot spearfish legally at all. It, it's more uh, has to do with the regulations based on the different species of fish. For example, um, striped bass, which is, you know, one of the, is a, is a species synonymous with um, our part of, of the world and, and certainly up in, in, you know, the New England area. Um, and it is legal to spear striped bass in New York, but it is illegal to spear them in Massachusetts, which is basically next to New York. So, you know, the regulations uh, vary from state to state dependent on the species. Also, uh, another example would be bluefin tuna. It's illegal to spearfish bluefin tuna on the East Coast, but of course on the West Coast, um, it is legal. So, um, yeah, there's nowhere, nowhere in the States where it's, as far as I know, where it's just completely illegal to spearfish, it's more uh, species specific. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think here in Minnesota, I mean, I guess technically I've been spearing, but that's Northern Pike through the ice. Mm -hmm. And that's very much regulated as well. I mean, you can only take a single Northern over a certain size length, which is not an exact science. I mean, when you're staring at this fish in the water, you can look at it and be like, huh. Are you 26 inches? Or are you 24 inches? Because mm -hmm. I can take you if you're mm -hmm. 24, but I can't. You know what I mean? Like it's right. it's really difficult. So I have to imagine you're down there with this gun in your hand and you're swimming and you're you're looking at fish that are borderline. You just have to pass. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, and that, and then that of course this brings up the whole topic of like the sustainability of of spearfishing and being able to select exactly you know what you want without any bycatch or you know, of course, with rod and reel, you can catch and release, but um, certainly uh, a percentage of those fish um, do not live after their release. So that's the mm -hmm. one of the beauties of spearfishing is having the ability to to hand select exactly the fish that you want to harvest to to eat. So for you, but, is, yeah, there's is your interest sorry. with it that like I know that you enjoy fish, you enjoy you know cooking and eating fish. Is is that something that, you know, continues to excite you about it? Or is it more the, you know, the, the hunt and the adventure or is it both for you? I mean, it's all of that. I mean, I, you know, for me, and I think this is something that all you guys will relate to being, um, fishermen, fisher women, women, um, and hunters and whatnot. I mean, for me, you know, and, and my lifestyle and, and, you know, constantly, you know, being on, on and in the water. And I'm also an avid 
uh, bow hunter and, and, you know, whatnot. So for me, there's a, a huge part of doing all this stuff is providing, you know, food for yourself and your friends and your family. It's just, it's like a way of life. Like I don't even really, I don't even think about it that often just because it's something that, uh, it just comes so natural to, to the way I live my life. So a, a, a huge part of, um, what drives my passion for spearfishing, um, is, you know, the, the, the act of harvesting food, right. Um, there's certainly the element of, you know, the adrenaline rush from, you know, the thrill of the hunt, if you will. Um, there's an element of, of trophy hunting, which comes with spearfishing. I mean, I don't, I'm, I never spear anything that isn't going to get eaten. That's going to go to waste. And I truly mean that, um, whether it's eaten by me or somebody else, but there is certainly, you know, an element of trophy hunting with spearfishing, which is the difference between like, I'm going to go out today and just, and, and target something specific just for food fair, or I'm going out because I'm also looking for this trophy fish, you know, first and foremost, but I'm also going to eat this fish or somebody's going to eat it. So yeah, there's definitely the, 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 the passion or the drive for, for going out and harvesting my own food. So it sounds like you've really traveled around the world doing this, but for the most part, you're based down in Southeast uh, on the East coast, Florida area, right? I mean, South Carolina, Florida, I mean, that's made, made or that would be your headquarters right now. Yeah. My headquarters is, is my home base is New York, Montauk, New York. So the East end of Long Island. Um, and then, like I said, this, this winter, I'm, I'm going to be in and out of Charleston, but you know, I travel, I travel a lot. I, I, I don't travel as much as I used to, but I used to, uh, like I used to spend a big part of the year in Panama. Um, I was actually just in Panama a couple of weeks ago and I'm heading back down there, um, this month, but, um, yeah, I travel, I travel a lot. Um, my, my travel schedule each year is, is a bit different and it's dictated by, you know, what I have going on with certain clients. Um, but, uh, yeah, there used, I used to spend a lot of time, a big portion of my time in Panama and a big portion of my time in Baja, Mexico, um, in, in the winter months, you know, I'm always, um, back at home in Montauk, um, typically, you know, for the entire summer and most of the fall. So this is something that you or people that hire you can do year round, essentially. You just have to go to the right area. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, um, if somebody that's listening finds this, some, you know, like me, this is a bucket list, uh, adventure, where would they connect with you and what is the name of your service? Um, so my, my service is my own brand. It's Peter Coriel worldwide spear fishing. Um, and the best way to connect with me would be via email or like social media, Instagram, or I have a website worldwide spearfishing dot com um or instagram which is peter coreal it's my instagram handle or peter coreal at gmail.com those are like the the easiest ways to to get in touch with me typically and we'll definitely link to that too in the um podcast description but so i gotta say before this both travis and i spent a little bit of time watching some of your videos um that we you know actually i was watching one that you sent to me and there's definitely several on youtube and got to kind of get excited, get a taste for it, watch it in action. And I can say, I mean, I know Travis would agree too. Like it, it's, 
like heart pounding to even just watch these videos. I was finding myself getting like excited and a little bit of like anxious energy. And I'm like, I'm not even doing it. And I like feel like I'm there, but <laughs> well, there's people, something about that deep water, the blue, the, blue, the you can't mm. see all and, the way down below, you know, depending on how deep you're diving. Yeah. I mean that in itself scares the living, you know what, out of some people. For sure. So, and for mm. people who are listening that haven't seen your videos and we hope that we, that they do go watch them after this, but it, tell us about the experience. What's it like getting in the water, like walk us through it. What do you see? What do you feel? And, and what's it like when you actually do find and choose and, um, shoot a fish? Mm, okay. So, um, it's funny because I mean, one thing you guys just touched on that, that I think is super interesting is, is definitely, I, I it's, it's a hurdle for, I think for most people when they get into spearfishing and that's like the deep blue, like the bottomless, mm -hmm ocean we'll call it um and the unknown and being completely out of out of your element i mean we are born on land right we're, we're terrestrial creatures if you will um so i think being you know floating out in the abyss is in some ways kind of where we don't belong and then and then of course what's so interesting about uh free dive spearfishing and something that I kind of forget because I, I do it so much is how comfortable you become in that environment. Um, it becomes like you almost become more comfortable in the water than you do on land at times. And, you know, something you said, Natalie, about like watching the videos and like kind of like having your heart pounding or whatever, that's like actually exactly what you don't want to happen when you're spearfishing right? because you're holding your breath. Uh -huh. So you want to be as calm as possible. You want your heart rate as low as you can get it. You want very little to no anxieties or distractions, and you want to be completely focused and almost in a catatonic state. And that basically when you can achieve that, that's when you're going to have your longest breath holds and your deepest dives, and you're going to be most in tune when it comes to, you know, the act of actually hunting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's such a hard thing to, to, to describe to somebody that's never done it in terms of how it feels. But for me, it's, it's, it's being completely relaxed and completely focused. Um, and I guess, you know, that would relate to, you know, any type of, I think, passion that people, people pursue. And one of, one of the, one of the things you, you want to get out of it is to be able to kind of block out all the other stuff that's going on in your life and be able to focus on that one thing that's going to bring you some type of calm or happiness. When you dive, how far down do you dive and how long can you stay underwater? Mm -hmm. So, um, for me at this point in, in my life, um, I'm certainly not a very deep diver in, in the grand scheme of things. And, and, I'm, and I don't have the longest breath hold, but I would say, you know, on, for, for the most part, you know, and, and, and listen, diving, how deep you're diving and for, and how long you're, you're staying under is, is usually very dependent on where you're spearfishing and what you're spearfishing for. So if I were to say, I'll give you an example. I was on a trip in Africa. This was back in November. Um, and that, that location, um, which I go to quite often, um, we go there specifically to target a fish called a dog tuna. And most of the time, those fish 
you're diving in places where you're diving deep, you're diving in a lot of current, it's usually pretty challenging. So on that trip, I didn't, and my, my average depth, I would say, and myself and I was with clients, we were all diving basically on average between 80 to 100 feet um, with occasional dives of over 100 feet. But I would say for me now, I mean, I'm not, I don't dive over 100 feet often. I used to dive a bit deeper um, a lot more when I was younger, but now I kind of keep it at or under 100 feet. And I, dives can range anywhere between a minute 20 and two minutes long. And actually, funny enough, this is like a day or two ago, this this kid randomly reached out to me. He was in college in Florida and he was doing some study for his psychology class. And he asked if he could call me and ask some questions. He was doing like a report on like free diving and breath hold with and something with psychology or whatever. And he had asked a, a kind of a similar question. And I was telling him how something I've I've noticed um, you know, lately, which I find very interesting is is kind of the rhythm that I I get into that I almost am not even noticing. And I think it's just from, you know, thousands and thousands of hours in the water. Um, and, and obviously my, the length of my, my, my dive and the depth is going to also be dependent from day to day. You know, there's so many variables, you know, you know, what's going on in between these dives, how much energy am I expanding? You know, if I need a kick in between dives, um, different things like that. But one thing I've noticed, cause I'll, I'll, you know, at the end of the day, I, uh, what I typically do is I'll, I'll take my, my dive watch and it records all my different dives and I can look and see like, you know, the, the, the length of time and the depth and everything. And there's certain, like, like, for example, a minute 20, for some reason, like on a typical day of diving, if I do say 50 dives, like 60 to 70% of those dives will be the whole dive will be a minute 20 long, wow. not a minute 19, mm-hmm. not a minute 21, a minute 20 on the dot. It's really interesting. And I'm not like when I'm diving, I'm not starting my dive and saying, I'm going to do a, a, a dive that's a minute and 20 seconds long. I'm just kind of diving. I kind of naturally know where my limits are at in that dive, depending on how I'm feeling. So I don't know. I've, I've found that really interesting. It's kind of a rhythm, but you know, so I guess back to the original question is on average, I could be diving anywhere from 30 feet deep to 100 feet with dives that are anywhere from a minute and 20 seconds long to, say, two minutes long. So this but is- there are guys out there that are diving a lot deeper and a lot longer. I mean, the European guys dive incredibly deep, and that's due to the environment they dive in. Um, there's guys that are that are free diving and, and spearing fish at you know, 160, 170, 200 feet deep with, you know, dives that can be over three minutes long. So this is something that is definitely, you know, that really interests me. I've been interested in breath work for a long time and then just generally like pushing the limits of the human body. And we were talking about this a little bit before, but it's one thing to hold your breath and, you know, do all the right things. You fill up with oxygen, you hold your breath when you're on land. But once you get in the water, I know it completely changes. And I'll say, I've never, I mean, Pete, how deep do you think I dove with you? Like 15 feet? Yeah. It's like like maybe no, like 15 or 20 feet. Yeah, yeah. So I never equalized, never really went down, but for, you know, people like me, how much different is it? What does it feel like on your body, both from a breath standpoint and just a pressure standpoint, once you start getting, you know, 50, 60, hundred feet underwater? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I for me, I don't really notice much of of anything except you know the act of equal equalization, which for me that's dependent day to day. Like if I'm having issues where I'm congested, congested, obviously, you know, the way I equalize is going to change. But in terms of like pressure on my body, I don't really experience anything adverse or noticeable though. I will, I will say that once you start diving, you know, once you start free diving past, let's say like 120 feet, I would say that's kind of a threshold. That's when things get like incredibly extreme. Um, they get become very dangerous. There's very little room for error. And that's where, you know, you, you will start to experience things like, for example, you can damage your trachea by like, you know, if you extend your head too far up because of pressure, you can also believe it or not, you can be at risk for getting the bends from free diving when you're free diving, you're doing consecutive deep dives. Um, so I, you know, I, in that, in that, you know, 30 to hundred foot range in terms of like effects from pressure, what, where you're really going to experience that it would be, you know, anything that has to do with equalization in your sinuses, nose, ears, that type of thing. So, you know, obviously when I went out with you, we were there really for other purposes, not for me to learn spearfishing, but I'm curious, you know, I- I didn't ever go down deep, but do you have success with clients who haven't scuba dived before, who this, you know, this is totally new to them. Are you able, are, are new people able to get down, you know? Well, scuba, scuba, yeah. you said scuba dive, but that's, that's a different. Yeah. But you know, if, if somebody has no experience whatsoever, you know? Yeah. Right. Like water. someone that's never done any type of diving yeah. in, in the water, whether it's free divers. Yeah. yeah. Can they so, do this? Yeah. So it's funny. I always say like everyone, first off, in terms of like holding your breath, like everyone has the ability to hold their breath for longer than they think. They just have to tap into it. And it has mm-hmm. a lot of times it has nothing to do with like even how good a shape you're in or how much of an athlete you are. Cause it's so much of it is mental. And it's, I think with just a little bit of guidance, everyone can tap into that. Um, and then as far as like being comfortable in the water, you know, it's funny. I've, 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 been around a lot of people that have, you know, decided they want to try to get into free dive spearfishing. And and it's kind of like, it's interesting. It's always like, there's basically like, it goes three ways. You either have the person that wants to get into it. And like the moment they get in the water, you can tell they're never going to want to do it again. (laughs) They're just, they're out of their element. They have too much anxiety. You know, I've, I've literally seen that. It's, it's actually almost comical. Like they'll be so fired up. It's they, they, they're constantly talking about it. It's all they want to do. They go out, they get all the gear, they're all ready and they get in and literally within like seconds, you can just tell they're like not into it. Like mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm out of here. This is not like, I'm terrified of this. And then you have the complete opposite of that, which is, you know, and I've seen this happen over the course of like, it could be even like a day, um, where you'll get someone that just is, you can tell right away you're just going to be good at it. And it usually like a sign of that is that they have, you know, limited anxiety when they, when, once they're immediately immersed in the water, they're just kind of naturally comfortable with it. And then of course, like how they pick up on technique, um, and how their breath hold is or whatever. And like I said, you can usually tell right away when someone's going to be, going to be good at it and they're going to keep with it. Um, 
And then you also have the person that kind of falls in the middle where they're probably not that like comfortable with it at first. Maybe they're not that athletically gifted, but they're so motivated and they want to do it so bad that you can tell they're going to push through all those barriers. And it's something they'll like continue and pursue as a passion. I, I've got a similar um, example. It's not in water, but I wonder if it kind of applies here in that everybody and every body would be different. I I hiked on a hunt for ptarmigan up in Colorado, and we were up at like 14,000 feet above sea level. And when you get into that elevation, it affects everybody's body differently in that mm. until I got there, I didn't know if I was going to be able to reach those altitudes and what my body would do. Cause the hunters that I went with have been doing it a while and their bodies acclimate and they can handle it, but they have taken people up there that reach a certain point where their bodies shut down on them and they have to go back down. They get altitude sickness. Now that's obviously way high up and you're going down below. Do you, do you have clients that get in the water and then there's a certain point where a body would just say, can't do this. I'm not built for this. Or is it all mental? Um, that's a, that's a good question. You know, funny enough, I was, uh, I was at similar elevation for the first time in a long time around new year's this year. And I got my, my butt kicked the first day I was up there. It was actually just at around 13,000 feet. It was amazing. I hadn't been up at elevation like that and kind of forget, but, um, yeah, so I, you know, the, the, the free dive thing, so much of it, like I said before, is mental. But in terms of like your, uh, in terms of answering that question, I mean, listen, there's, I know I said that like anyone can tap into a long breath hold for longer than they think they can. And a lot of it has to do, most of it has to do with mental and not necessarily like your athletic abilities. But the fact of the matter is in, in the actual act of free diving, you know, certainly you know, you take two people and one of them's in, in good shape and one of them is out of shape. Obviously, you know, the person in better shape is, is in theory going to, going to excel more or maybe not get to a point where they, they need to stop and they're limited to what they can do because of their physical condition. Um, in terms of, of something that would be similar to like an altitude sickness, honestly, I, I would say being seasick would be probably the closest yeah. thing that would like relate to that. And you know, you can certainly get seasick while floating on the surface of the ocean if the if the sea state is rough. Um, so I guess those would be like the two biggest, or actually there'd be three big limiting factors to somebody, you know, being able to free dive spearfish from a physical standpoint. And it would be, it would just be um, fatigue from the act of actually diving and breath holding. Um, it could be a situation of, of being seasick or it could be a, a sinus equalization situation. I've seen that actually a lot. I've seen people that have had maybe, I'll give you an example. I have a buddy that I, I got really into spearfishing and, and he was an ex-professional boxer. So his nose has been broken like 10 times. And one of the biggest hurdles he had when he first got into it was being able to equalize because of his sinus issues from, from, you know, having his nose broken so many times. So that could be, that could actually be a, a, a make or break for someone that wanted to get into it. 
Well, let's get back into the adrenaline rush part of this experience and what it's like. And also probably some of the fears. I have to imagine that you have come across some pretty hairy moments in your over a decade of diving around the world. Have you ever had near-death experiences down there? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's funny. It's something that I think for the for the average person that ha- hasn't done hasn't been free diving or spearfishing, I think the first thing they would think, you know, the biggest risk would be sharks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sharks are certainly can be a risk. It's something that, depending on where you you're diving, it, it's something that you're going to encounter all the time. Um, but you know, thing the, the, the higher risk, um, elements would be shallow water blackout, which is basically, they call it shallow water blackout because it usually happens within the first, say 20 feet of the water column. And to put it like in layman's terms, it's basically from holding your breath too long and diving too deep, you basically go unconscious. And what, what'll happen once you lose consciousness is that you'll either sink because of you're wearing, typically you're wearing weight, um, to help you, you know, basically get down depending on how thick your wetsuit is. Um, and you'll either sink and drown or you'll still stay afloat on the surface, but your, your face will be, you'll be facing down into the water. And so you, you'll drown. Um, so shallow water blackout is, is probably the number one risk with, with free diving. Um, and then, you know, getting run over by a boat is, is a huge risk as well. Do you wear um, like a, do you have a flag of some kind when you're out there so, and you go in group? Yeah. If, if you were diving off the beach, um, and you know, the law is kind of different everywhere, but typically in, in most parts of the world, you, you have to have a dive flag either on the boat or attached to you or your spear gun um, on, on a length of line. Um, so like if you were diving off the beach, you would, you would drag a line. It could be anywhere from, from 50 to hundred feet long. And on the end of the line on the surface would be a, a float or a buoy. And that would have a flag on it to indicate, you know, that you're, you're spear fishing, you're diving there. And that would, and that in theory is supposed to keep boats away from you. So you don't get run over. Um, and then when you're diving from a boat, you should have a dive flag that's displayed on the boat and whoever's running the boat should have the wherewithal or the knowledge or, or ability to keep the boat within a certain distance of the divers. Or also, you know, there's a technique called blocking where essentially if there's a boat headed in your direction and it's going to run you over, the person running the boat that you're on would maneuver that boat so as to block that other boat from, you know, its course or path to run you over. You mentioned fish though. I have to imagine there's been some big fish that have come your way that you've gotten pretty close to. Is that a thing that's in the back of your mind? Because I would imagine that 99% of the listeners right now are thinking shark. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the risk with large fish would be after you spear the fish um, becoming entangled in the line that's attached to the spear that's ultimately attached to the fish. Um, and that's certainly something that you need to always be aware of. Um, you know, there, there, there can, it's, it's very rare, but it has happened issues with, um, marlin or sailfish where they've, you know, 
become aggressive and turned around and and tried to impale people with their bill. Um, I've I've personally never had that happen, but uh, but I've heard stories of that, and I've seen those fish when they're not speared act in kind of aggressive acting with aggressive behavior but i've never had an issue where they've they've swam at you and speared you but yeah the danger would be in in dealing with a large fish after it's been speared and dealing with the line or you know the shaft that's already through the fish i mean i can tell you guys a couple stories that kind of come to mind with Mm -hmm. that but um yeah we'd love to hear yeah you know i remember one that just i just thought of it's crazy i haven't thought of this one in a while this was in down in baja mexico we were out diving off the Pacific side out on this remote spot that I used to go out to and spend a lot of time on. It was basically a rock that was the top of the rock was about 120 feet deep and everything around it was around say 200 to 250 feet. And we were out there. I had a client with me and he, so he was actually using a small spear gun with a, with a reel attached to it, the, the equipment that you would usually use for smaller fish. And he had I can remember, I think he also had a shorter, maybe like a 50 foot line that was attached to the handle of the spear gun. And at the end of the line, there was a a buoy on the surface and he ended up spearing this really big black, well, not really big, but, but, you know, a three or 400 pound black marlin. I forget. Yeah. And it was this crazy thing where it was kind of unexpected. Um, I actually didn't, I was like right next to him. We were on the surface and I had my head turned or something and he did a dive. And I remember like turning my head and looking down and, you know, a lot of times Marlin are speared very close to the surface. So he, he didn't even do a deep dive. And he's like, I mean, you know, it takes a minute for your brain to process so you don't know what you're looking at. So I'm looking down and he's like 20 feet down and he's just holding on to his spear gun. And I think what had happened is the, the the shooting line, which is the like the first length of line that's attached to the spear, it had gotten wrapped up in in the bands on the spear gun. The bands are what you load onto the spear. It propels mm-hmm. the spear out of the gun. And there was he had like a foul up, and the line had like gotten wrapped up on on these bands. So he was down at twenty feet, holding onto the spear gun, and his the bands, which are rubber, were like stretched way out. Because the line was wrapped on them, and on the other end of that line was like a three or four hundred hundred pound black marlin that was just dragging them through the water. And I remember like looking down and being like, "Holy crap! Like what the what the heck's going on? Like, What'd you oh do? my god, this guy just..." So that what ended up happening with that fish, you know, typically those fish you'll shoot them and they run, and you know you'll be using a long line with usually sometimes multiple buoys, so that the buoys are what kind of stop the fish from completely getting away from you, and then you have to. You basically have to fight the fish while you're on the surface. You're pulling the line in, um, but with a big marlin, it, it's a, it could be a very long process, and they'll run and they'll take the buoys with them, and you have to sometimes you even have to get in the boat and, and chase after the buoys. So that fish, for whatever reasons, we had it up on the surface, like or up near the surface, really quick. It wasn't in our hands yet, and because of the nature of the equipment, and you know the we, basically I. It, my instincts were to try to like, I wanted to get my hands on this fish, like really quick. I wanted it to, to, to capture this thing and get it in the boat because there was the fear of losing it because of the equipment. So the fish we had kind of, we were working up the, or, or the, the client was working up the line and the fish had come up to the surface and it was kind of just swimming in this big circle. And it kind of swam around towards me. 
And I just got my hands around, I think I got both arms around its bill. And the thing just went like, you know, the full Marlin head shake went crazy. And I remember in, I mean, it was, it was really like beating the crap out of me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh man, like I'm so committed now. Like I can't let go. Right. Because if I let go, I'm at risk of being impaled. And then, but I also, at the same time, remember thinking like, oh man, like this thing's going to break my wrist. Because, you know, you can imagine the power on a three or 400 pound um, black marlin. And if you've ever rod in real fish form or seen people catch them, I mean, one thing that's indicative of of their behavior, especially when they have a hook in their mouth, is they jump and they shake their head, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what this, it was just shaking its head back and forth. And I was, and I had two hands on this thing's bill and it was just literally. So like I said, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, I'm committed. I can't let go because I might get impaled by this thing. Oh, but, but if I continue to hold on, I might, this thing might break my wrists or break my arms. So ultimately, um, I, the fish ended up eventually like subduing. And one thing with, with, I, I tell this to people a lot with, with big pelagic fish, especially like once you get your, like your hands in their gills and you have them upside down in the water, like the, it's like game over. It's game over. Cause I feel them. a lot of your pictures are like that. It'll, I mean, People should look these up. It'll be an image of, you know, you or a client that just looks tiny next to this gigantic fish in the water. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like you're always mm. holding them vertically like that. So is that that's kind of the trick for it, I guess. Yeah, it's just that's that's like to to, to get control, like physical control of them is you, you want your hands up in their gills. And I, for whatever reasons, once they're when you get them upside down, I don't know if, if it disorients them or whatever. It's almost like a shark; like they go almost go catatonic. Mm-hmm. But you just you have control, and you have to understand too. Like that's their weak spot or their gills. That's mm-hmm. like the most fragile part of their body, and that's how they breathe. And and you know, there's a it's very vascular in their gills. Like if you ever you know if you're if you know from fishing, you mm-hmm. ever cut a, a, a mm-hmm. fish's gills. I mean, what happens? They immediately start to bleed out. So. Yeah, typically once you get up up under their, you know, under the gill plates with your hands around the gills and, and you have them upside down, like you'll you'll have full full is, control. What is the largest fish you've ever taken with a spear gun? So my largest fish, I guess, would be my my largest fish that I ever successfully landed, because I've actually um and I hate to say it too, because it's it sucks when you when you when you lose a big fish and you hope, you know you know, of course, if they yeah. die, it's, it's a total waste. And I've shot some, some very big Marlin that I've lost. Um, the, my biggest fish I, I, off the top of my head to date would be my biggest yellowfin tuna, which was 269 pounds. 269. Yeah. Wow. So I, you've brought up a, a point that I think a lot of listeners might not have realized before this conversation. And that's that when you spear a fish, should we say spear or, or, or shoot? Yeah, spear, spear or you can use either. either. Okay. Yeah. So when you spear a fish, that fish is not necessarily killed right away. There is still often, I guess, how often is there a fight ahead? And what's that like with just like, I don't know, a medium-sized fish? Mm, so, yeah, I mean, typically, you know, what, what, uh, what uh, a situation where you would spear a fish and they would immediately be paralyzed or dead we call that a the terminology would be a stone shot so most fish unless you hit them like in the spine which paralyzes them or right in the brain which would essentially immediately kill them um you know most of the time you're going to have a a fight on your hands depending on you know the size of the fish the species 
Um, and, and there are some species of fish. Uh, an example would be a Kubera snap or, or a grouper, where a lot of times when you shoot those fish, they go inside of a hole or cave on the reef. And then that can be a whole other, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it takes one dive to shoot a big grouper, but it could take you an entire day to try to get it out of the hole it went into after you shot it. So what, what's your most, what's your most, I'm just so eager to ask my next, my next question. If you could pinpoint a most memorable or meaningful experience spearfishing that you've had. Mm. Yeah, honestly, there's been so many. I mean, <laughs> literally, you know, there was, there was a point for me in my career where, and, and I, I honestly mean this, I think I was probably spearfishing more than like anyone. I was in the water every single day throughout the whole year, almost every day. Right. And there was certain places, like there was a, there was a place in Panama where, where a certain spot there where we were spearfishing a lot. And I mean, I would be out there every day you know, I would be in Panama for three months straight and almost every day, we were all day, every day in the water on that spot. So, you know, there's been so many experiences and, and a lot of them have nothing to do with the act of actually spearing and killing a fish. It could be just all the crazy stuff you see in the water from, you know, whales to dolphins to, you know, whatever, there's a ton, you know, the sea life and, and, and stuff of that nature. But in terms of like, memorable fish. I mean, like I said, there's been so, so many of them with so many different, you know, meaning to me for different reasons. Um, but there certainly are some that like stand out. I, and, and of course, like recent catchers, um, but I'll give you a couple examples. Um, for me, when I was younger, my first real pelagic fish that I speared was a Wahoo. And that was an incredibly memorable, incredible feeling that I'll probably never forget. Was that in Panama? Um, that, that was my first Wahoo in Panama. Uh, yes, it was. And that was, that was before I was like running trips as a guide down in Panama. It was, it was years, years ago. Um, and then I would say as of, as of recent for me, I'll give you a recent, very memorable, meaningful fish and, and I guess it's more so experience. Um, that last trip I did to Africa um, this past fall. Uh, and like I said earlier, you know, we go there specifically to target those dog tooth tuna, which I, I, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people that are avid spear fishermen would say the same thing. That's, that's like, kind of like the pinnacle in the world of spear fishing there. They're first off, you know, we don't even have them on this side of the world. So you kind of have to travel far to find them and they can be the conditions that you're diving in can be incredibly challenging. A lot of times they're you're diving really deep for them, and then you know pound for pound strength wise, there is nothing like a doggy. And you know, getting a spear into one of those things, no matter how good of a shot you get, is like just a like the first step, right? Or 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 just one of the steps in the long process of actually landing one and getting one in the boat. And a lot of times they will just destroy your gear or take all your gear and never be seen again. Um, I mean, everyone, anyone that 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 avidly hunts, you know, specifically for those fish will tell you tons of stories of, of them just destroying gear or like I said, taking everything to the depths and you never see them again. So, um, you know, I go to this area of Africa. I've been going, I think this year was my fifth or sixth trip there. Um, like I said, targeting's, you know, mainly for, we shoot other species of fish when we're there, but we're going there for, for these doggies. And 
this year, I had a, a group of, of quote unquote clients. All my clients ended up becoming good friends. So we'll call them clients and, and good friends. And this was their, their second year in a row doing this trip with me. And um, they're all good divers. One of them, one of the guys specifically is, is a very experienced, very good diver. He actually has a, a, a business that makes spearfishing equipment. And he has done quite a few trips around the world um, hunting doggies. And he had landed like a couple small ones, I think. But, but he had shot a lot of bigger fish, but he had lost them all. And, and the year before when he was down there with me, I think he shot he shot like six or seven big doggies and lost them all. And some of it, you couldn't even explain. They just, they just tore the gear out or they broke the gear. So these, and, and, and it was the same case for the other um, three guys on the trip. They had, you know, the year before they were down there with me, they all had shots on these fish, but they were just, you know, they would, they were disheartened by, by, you know, losing all these fish. So it's like they're, they were coming back for redemption. And we, the trip we did this year, we, we had done a, a, a bit of a longer trip. We were, we were doing what's called a liveaboard trip. So we had a mothership that you stay on offshore and then you have a smaller boat that you're diving off of. And the we did like, I think it was, it was like a 10 or 11 day trip with like nine days of diving. So it was a long trip offshore and we decided to go to two different spots. We focused, um, most of the time on, on the first spot, which we had, we had been to before, um, and we had, you know, the whole time there, it was amazing. We had great weather. We shot yellow fins. We shot big mahi. We shot plenty of wahoo. One guy actually shot a nice big black marlin, a couple big GTs. And the the spot where we get the doggies, they were there, but they were deep. It was challenging. Guys were getting opportunities on them, but, you know, no one could, we put one small fish in the boat, but no one could could land a big fish. And our last, it was funny, the last day at that spot before we moved in the next spot, um, like right, like literally like right before, you know, we didn't even have enough light to, to dive, um, both myself and one of the other guys on the trip who was like the most experienced, this guy, Jerry, uh, we both shot big fish and we both lost them. Um, mm -hmm. and we, so we were kind of like, you know, you're disheartened, but we, but we were having a great trip up into that point. And we were excited to go to this new spot that none of us had dove at before. But, uh, you know, certainly I had known quite a bit of, about it, but, but I didn't have really high expectations. So we went up to this new spot. We steamed overnight on the boats and we had like three days there. And, you know, to not to make this story too long, but basically where that spot we were at, the, 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 the place we were going to dive for these doggies, it was very close. We were, we were up in this big natural lagoon. That was our anchorage. And it was basically like a 10 minute boat ride. To this drop off, this reef drop off, um, where where these fish can be found. So it was a close run, and you had to dive the spot on an incoming or a flood tide. And and we had that flood tide during that time frame um, at the later part of the day. So we ended up going to this this spot um, on that first day. We got up to that new area, and we we you know we're there on the boat and. Um, you know, you kind of like the first thing you kind of do at a spot like that is you, you determine the direction of the current and you drive around and you look at the bottom machine or, or the fish finder and, and you, you're going to look for a specific piece of bottom that'll usually be holding bait. And once you can find the bait, that's usually where you're going to find these fish. So we, ended, we, we found the area. We did a couple um, drifts. So basically you get in the water up current of the spot, you're drifting. And the idea is to time your dive. So you're diving down 
you know, into the bait over this specific piece of bottom. And then depending on the speed of the current, you know, you might get one or two dives. Um, and then you get back in the boat, you run back up current, you get in. So we had done like three drifts and we were figuring it out. We had, we had had a couple good dives into the bait. And ultimately, I think it was on the fourth drift, we ended up landing in a school of doggies. Like I'll never forget this stuff for the rest of my life. I mean, a lot of times when you're hunting those fish, you, you'll see them in small groups or you might see a single fish alone. This was like an aggregation that they must have been there to spawn. And it was hundreds of fish wow. in a school and they were all big. And when I say big, there was no doubt world record dog tooth tuna there. I mean, I saw I saw doggies that were so big, I still don't I to this day will never know. I mean, they they could have been, you know, 250 to 300 pound fish. They were they were absolutely huge. And on that fourth drift, um, you know, a, a trip like this, if you have one guy shoot one doggy that's over a hundred pounds, like you're winning. It's a success. Even if it's only one guy, right. And one fish. So on that fourth drift, we had three guys all shoot fish, not only on the same drift, but almost simultaneously. And not only were all those fish over a hundred pounds, but one of them went 209 pounds, which is an absolute fish of a lifetime. And, uh, so yeah, it was incredible. And then the next day we went back out to that spot for the last couple hours of daylight. And out of those four guys, there was one guy that hadn't shot his fish yet. And he ended up shooting one that it went like, I think 123 pounds, which funny enough at that point, you know, we were so jaded from the day before that he was almost I'm not even gonna say almost, I could tell he was a bit disappointed in that fish, right? Because they were bigger fish. And I actually saw him, I literally dove at the same, we were diving together. All the other guys kind of were in the boat, kind of helping out and me and him were diving together. And we were, I was almost like next to him. I was probably, maybe I was like 30 or 40 feet away from him when he shot that fish at the same depth. And I'll, and actually I'll, that's a, a view I'll never forget. I wish I had a camera with me. Um, he was, we were, we had dove and we were kind of on the edge of, of this school of doggies. And they were like, you know, they were all, they were barely moving. They were all kind of facing into the current or into the tide. So they were just kind of stemming the tide, right? They were, they were just swimming just enough so that they would stay in one position, all facing the same direction. And all those fish were probably a hundred to 250 pounds. And there was like, you know, 200 of them. And, and the one thing, you know, a physical aspect of those doggies is they have these white spots on like the tip of their, their dorsal fin and, and their tail. And a lot of times in the water, the, the, those spots are really visible at depth. And a lot of times, you know, a, a lot of these pelagic fish, like when you look at them from above, they're kind of camouflaged because, of, you know, they're usually kind of like a sheen of blue or whatever. With doggies, it's sometimes all you see are those white spots. And I'll never forget, like, looking at that school of doggies and just seeing these white spots everywhere. Natalie was, and I are looking was, at yeah, pictures, we're looking right, at pictures right, now. right now. I have yeah. to ask, too, while you're talking about this, what happens next? So you got a group of your, you know, now friends. You've all got fish. Are you... 
eating the fish on the boat? Are you taking it in? What is that evening, that celebratory evening yeah, look like? It's a good question. This this whole doggy story, I gotta tell you, it's like the best story to tell because this was a really it was it was and honestly, like I don't even know, like I personally don't don't even know of a of a of a recent trip that anyone's done for doggies that was that successful. I mean, we ultimately after that guy shot that, so we had the three fish taken the day before which were like 170 to 209 pounds. And then Hunter shot his fish the next day, which was 123. And then I went in the next drift after, or two drifts after Hunter and I shot one that was like 170 something. So it was, it was pretty insane. So anyways, the day before that, when those first three big fish were shot, I mean, it's first off, it's like basically chaos, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it was like, you know, th those doggies, you know, you're using buoys. Like, so the doggies are so strong that we, especially in Africa, you, you never use less than two buoys. Sometimes you use three buoys, right? And that's you know, the it's buoy hard. is, can you explain that to us? Yeah, so uh, I'll try to or explain to... it without going too, too much in depth. Basically the buoy is, so we use buoys that you inflate with air um, and they're attached to the line, which is attached to the spear, which is stuck in the fish. And the buoys are what, you know, if you didn't have the buoys, you would spear the fish and they would just take off with your gear. So the buoys are what basically stop the fish. So mm -hmm. the, the, typically the buoys we use, they're, they're rated to three atmospheres, um, an atmosphere being 33 feet, and you have to include above the surface as one atmosphere. So basically those floats, if they're filled um, to full capacity, um, I should look it up real quick. I forget what like the pound, the, 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 the lift, you know what all the specs are on them but basically they'll they'll stay fully inflated until they get down to 66 feet and then they'll compress they still have air in them but they compress and then they'll come back up but to put it to put it simply typically when we're hunting big pelagic fish we use one buoy and when you shoot a fish they don't even take the buoy they can't submerge the buoy mm -hmm. and if you tried as a human if you were to like in the water grab onto one of those buoys and try to pull it under the water would be completely impossible for you to do. That's how much lift they had. So with those doggies, they're so strong that you have to use, especially if you're diving in deeper water where they can swim deep, you have to use a minimum of two buoys. They'll take three or four buoys down if you have that many on that time. So they're incredibly strong. So it's like I said, it's, it's so nerve wracking when you shoot them, even if you get a good shot on them, because you shoot them and then it's like, Oh man, like you can't stop them. You know, you're mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, like, all right, let's hope everything holds up and they don't take all the buoys down. And a lot of times they take the buoys down and the buoys disappear and you're like, oh my God, I just <laughs> lost everything. And then the buoys come back up. And another thing too, you have to remember is a, a lot of times those doggies live in areas, they live in and around sharks. So a lot of times you lose the, the doggies to the sharks, like the sharks mm -hmm. eat them. I've, that was my very next question is, you know, you see people that are fishing with line rod and reels in the boat and they're battling a fish, a tuna, whatever it might be, or a uh, tarpon. And all of a sudden a shark just comes up and just rips the fish apart mid battle. Yeah, and, and, and I have and to imagine same. you've got blood and a struggling fish and now you're attracting these sharks. I mean, what, what, what do you do to avoid losing a fish to a shark? Do you ever have to worry yourself to be in the middle of that situation where you're yeah. not worried too? Right, right. So basically you know, it depends on where you are. Like I gave an example, the Bahamas, which is super sharky. That's a big issue there. And, you know, what do you do to, to try to prevent losing fish to sharks? So a lot of times you can't do anything. A lot of times it's, you know, you're, you're, you become, you know, 
exposed to like heavy risks, trying to keep that. That's any close calls I've had with sharks have always been for me trying to keep keep them from getting the fish that I speared. Um, Are you ever worried so about yourself of, though in the middle of that chaos? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that's you know, like the safest thing to do is when there's a shark issue and you're spearing fish, is just let them eat the fish. <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of times we don't do that, and we're we're sometimes like especially in the Bahamas where it's you're dealing, you're doing a lot of times diving in shallower water. You're also using primitive equipment there. Spear guns are illegal in the Bahamas. So you're using pole spears or Hawaiian slings. But a lot of times in the Bahamas, it's like a teamwork thing. And you'll like, you'll have one guy kind of like, he's down there with like a spear, like poking at the sharks to try to keep them away while you're trying to get the fish to the surface. Um, so yeah, the shark thing, you know, it can, it can be a, a big factor in losing fish. And like I said, with those doggies, um, especially in, in Africa, you know, and a lot of times what happens is those things, they dive, you shoot them, they dive super deep. They take the floats down. You can't see the fish, you know, they could be 200 feet down and the sharks are down there just, you know, vaporizing them. So, you know, and that's always the worst feeling, right? The floats submerge. So you're like, oh man, I, I, I just like, I hope these things come back up. I'm going to lose this fish. And the worst feeling is when those floats come flying back up to the surface because mm -hmm. you know there's no more pressure on the line and you either you lost that fish because it either either tore off it broke some part of your gear or the sharks vaporized it so um yeah that adds like so that's so back to like this whole like you know experience we had with you know three of these fish being all shot at once you can imagine how chaotic it was i mean it, and you know not everyone we're, we're not really next to each other we're kind of staggered in the drift so each guy was like say 50 to 100 yards apart and i was with the guy the first guy to spear the or sorry the first fish spear i was with that guy so he shot his fish chaos i was actually the fish took his buoy down came up and then he was holding on to the buoy being dragged and i was holding on to the second buoy behind him with a camera being dragged and as this is happening we're hearing someone like up current of us screaming because they're freaking on a total adrenaline rush with a fish on. <laughs> and then there's another guy up current to him with his first doggy that he's ever speared that went 209 pounds. It was just, it's so surreal. And actually, so the big, the, the 200 pounder, what happens, another thing with doggies is they get what's called barrow trauma. So after all that initial chaos, like, you know, where you spear them and they take all your gear and the sharks are trying to eat them and everything, basically, you know, they have this first initial crazy run. But once you can start, once you start gaining on them and you start getting them to the surface, their, their, their air bladder fills with air and they mm -hmm. just kind of start to float up. And it's really dramatic because they look even bigger because they're just full. Their stomach is so full of air. So, you know, this whole chaotic thing ensued. We had the first two fish on the boat, you know, after fighting them, all this stuff. And then we were running you know, on the boat to go over to Jamie to see his situation. And he's just sitting there on the surface of the water, you know, screaming, you know, with, you know, excitement. And there's just this giant doggy just floating next to him. Wow. And we're like, holy crap. Yeah, it was, it was, it was <laughs> insane. And then, you know, of course there's, you know, it's an insane experience and everyone's <sighs> so excited for everyone. And, and there's so much adrenaline and and it's it's unbelievable and then you go th you know we went through the whole process of taking photos or whatever and then with those fish we made our way back to the to the mothership and we actually right after we shot those fish 
you know, what, so on that trip, you know, we're obviously, like I said, nothing goes to waste. So we're, we're eating, you know, a lot of that fish during the trip on the boat. We will freeze a bunch of it. We have freezers on the boat. One thing we do in Africa is we give a lot of fish away. There's these, there's the local fishermen. I mean, these guys are freaking talking about badass. They're out on these, these, um, traditional fishing boats. They're called Dows. D-H-O-W is how they're spelled. And they're wooden. And they have these, um, they're typically single masted with like a canvas. It's called the lanteen sail. So they're basically traveling mostly under wind power. They do have small outboards, but they're these incredibly primitive boats. They don't even have like a deck inside the boat. You're, you're completely exposed. And these guys are out on those boats for like weeks at a time. Going after the same type of fish. They're, they're not chasing doggies. It's, it's, they just don't have the equipment to, to to land those fish. So they're, they're hand lining and they're, they're basically targeting anything that they can physically land with the equipment they have, which is basically just fishing line and lures. I mean, they have like outriggers on the boats made out of literally like, you know, they're, 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 they're tree stumps basically. Um, and you know, I do, I've seen those guys, like they cook with like open flames on the boat. I've been out there in gnarly weather and they're out there. I mean, completely exposed, no cover. So like, if it starts raining, they'll like, you know, sometimes they'll just, you'll see them, they'll have a tarp and they like wrap themselves in a tarp. It's, it's crazy. Pete, so I don't know if you, I, Pete, I don't know if you realize the life that you're living right now. Do you ever <laughs> yeah. take a step back and be like, man, look at what I've accomplished. Look where I've been. I mean, your energy is so contagious and the places you've been and the experiences you've lived through, I don't know how you don't have a full camera crew following your every move and documenting yeah. it for a Nat Geo yeah. TV show. You know, you know what, some, you know, what makes me sometimes like step back and go, whoa, is like, for example, like what I'm telling you is basically from like one trip, you know, like, <laughs> right. you know, I, I could days. like, mm-hmm. yeah, I could write, like when I was doing my trips in Panama, um, for the first, whatever it was, nine years, I had founded an outfitter down there with a buddy of mine and our trips, there's, there's, there's an island down in that area. It's called Isla Montuosa, which is a very small, you can walk around in about three hours. It's a very small uninhabited island, 60 miles offshore. Um, It's basically like Jurassic Park. And we would set up a campsite um, for three months straight um, on that island. And we would bring our clients out there. Our trips would be four days long. And they would, we would literally do like back-to-back trips. So I would be living on this deserted island out in the middle of the ocean in a tent for like three months straight going out every day and we were shooting big yellow fins. And, um, and those, those days I call them my Tarzan days, um, <laughs> were like so insane. I mean, the amount of stories you could write books. I mean, it's actually a, a full on miracle. I mean, there are a lot of close calls, but a full on miracle that nobody ever like died or, you know, lost a limb or anything. I mean, it's, we got so lucky. It yeah, sounds like you're much more days. tame right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Pete, but, we just, um, we just have a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask yeah. for, for people that are listening here that maybe are based in like the Midwest or, or hunters or anglers, but they want to give this spear fishing thing a try. Obviously it's something that you need to go with, with a professional, with a guide right away. But is there a place that you would recommend like a, a a part of the world or, you know, any recommendation that you could give just generally speaking of how somebody could try it for the first time? Yeah. Um, good question. So, you know, the, uh, I, I, this comes up in conversation a lot, you know, spearfishing has changed so much in the last say 10 or 15 years. I mean, I remember when I was younger, it was like this underground sport that, you mm-hmm. know, to get into it, you had to find some, some OG that like had been doing it forever. And you had to like, 
take you under his wing. And like, you couldn't even like, you know, a big blue water spear gun, like people were like hand making them. You couldn't even really, it was a whole thing. But anyways, with, with, you know, things have changed a lot, especially with the advent of like, you know, the internet and social media, it's, it's, you know, I think people who have never, never knew what it was are so much more exposed to it. Um, and with all that said, there, there's, there's tons of, you know, free dive instructors. There's a couple different companies that um, do these like certified free diving classes. So what I recommend to people that have never done it before that want to get into it is to start by taking, I mean, listen, you can certainly like, you know, YouTube and stuff like that. There's, you can start by, you know, doing your, your Google research, if you will, and, and mm -hmm. starting to get some insight into what it takes and, 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 and the techniques and whatnot. But the, I would say that the, the first thing to actually get into it would be to um, search out a, you know, a, a, a known free dive instructor or organization. And, you know, a good place to start for people in the States would be Florida. Um, there's, you know, quite a big free dive spearfishing culture in the state of Florida. Um, it's warm basically all year round. Um, there's some good spearfishing on either side, what east or west coast of Florida. And then of course you have the Bahamas, which is very close, which is one of my favorite places to go spearfishing, favorite places in the world. And it's also probably one of the best places to learn because the, the water's super clear, it's warm. Um, a lot of times the fish are shallow and you have to use primitive equipment, which is you know safer to start with typically. Um, but I but anyways, back to the the the, the answer to this. So I would suggest for anyone that wants to get into it to to find a good free dive and you know free, not only a free dive instructor but someone a lot of guys will focus on you know free dive instruction as well as intro to spear fishing and find somebody in Florida um there's plenty of guys that can offer you know not only a free diving course but they have boats or they work with a, a local charter boat that they can then take you out spear fishing uh, Pete, I could talk for days about this. I have so many more questions, but we do have to wrap it up. The last thing I yep. want to just discuss briefly, and maybe you can speak to it or maybe not, but is there any kind of a spearfishing movement in inland waters on lakes, you know, that it could potentially spread into the Midwest region that you're aware of or around the country at freshwater lakes instead of just the ocean? Yeah, there's like a whole freshwater spearfishing subculture, believe it or not. Not and actually they hold so there's like there's the spearfishing competitive scene and there's what's called like the US Nationals and actually they held they've held the Nationals in freshwater a couple times. Hmm. So there's like a whole culture. I mean, there's people that only not only well there's people that only spearfish freshwater in the states and then there's people that like are live in in out west or in the midwest um and spearfishing like the lakes and rivers and then also like very actively travel to other parts of the world to 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 spear you know to spear in oceans and spear other fish and some of those guys are like big into the competitive scene as well so yeah it's absolutely it's absolutely something that it's it's a it's a subculture of spearfishing that's been going on for a while that probably isn't as obviously doesn't get as much exposure as like your typical um spearfishing in the ocean but yeah there's 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 a scene there's there's quite a few people doing that wow well pete we could talk to you as travis said <laughs> yeah. all day but we'll let you go here i know you know it's something that, that yes travis and i are both very intrigued and excited about and uh you know we hope you listeners out there are 
as well. Definitely an exciting a, episode. A, a so. fraction of a glimpse into yes. Pete's life. Yes. It's amazing. Mm. So thank you again, Pete, um, for your yep. time today. It was great chatting with you. And again, we'll put links to all your stuff uh, in the description here. So people listening, definitely check out what Pete's been doing and, and get in contact with him. Cool. Thanks, Pete. Um, all right, guys. Natalie, your experience in the water didn't quite live up to some of Pete's <laughs> no, stories. I didn't did, <laughs> uh, spear a dogfish tuna, that's for sure. But no, just even just re-listening to this, it, it's something uh, that I, I know I'm going to try again. Are you going to do it, Travis? I would love to. I mean, it's been on my list of things to do for a long time. I He mentioned some of the fears that people have when they jump in, and you wonder what it'll be like. It's kind of like, uh, are you afraid of heights? You don't know what your body, your mind will right. do until you're in that situation. But I'm fascinated by the underwater world. I all I could stare at an underwater camera, you know, mm-hmm. and I drop it down because it's like, what is down there? You yeah. know, what's under the water? I look yeah. in the water, I can't see the bottom, you know, but I want to know. Really, I'm fascinated by fish, the underwater world, and to be there swimming amongst them. Would you freak out? Would I freak out? I don't know. Especially, I kept asking him about sharks because in my <laughs> mind, I'm I'd be looking. And I mean, you mentioned it yeah. before we yeah. went on here it's, that it's you in were in your mind for sure. It's got to yeah. be in your mind when you yeah. can't see down below mm-hmm. you can't you have no idea what's down there at least you know he said being calm and cool some people i think that would be pretty challenging yeah. to do i have to say though real quick i you know i'm like many people went into the water being afraid of sharks i'm looking around headed on a swivel but i have to say that by the time it was time to get out of the water even before that when i had gotten comfortable i was mm-hmm. like oh i want to see one you know you do start to get comfortable down there and it's something that you know anyone who spends time in the ocean will say of course, there's something that you need to take there. They deserve all your respect, mm-hmm. but they are magnificent creatures. Yeah. So. Well, fascinating conversation today. Yes. Good find. I would imagine the experience is uh, one that you'll never forget being okay. able to spend that with him out there. For people that want to kind of get a glimpse into Pete's life, oh, totally do it. Check it out. Pete Coriel on Instagram. And he's got a lot of photos and videos there. You'll get a glimpse into what he was talking about. A ton of energy. Great guy. Uh, we will try to top this guest on our next episode i don't know if we will but um we're gonna do our best so we hope you'll join us then on our next episode of the do north outdoors podcast Mm -hmm.